Hey y'all, let me have your attention. We're going to go ahead and begin. And this morning, we're going to look at the fourth and final of our, of our benedictions. What we're going to try to do in the next few years in J-term and other times is, is try to provide biblical teaching on every aspect of our worship, all the elements of our worship. Three weeks ago, we looked at, in the first of our J-term classes, at the biblical mandate for a benediction in our worship. One of the things we really want to stress, and if you're new, hope you'll pick up on, is everything we do in Lord's Day worship, morning and evening worship, has a biblical rationale. We have a warrant, a command, a principle, and so we haven't made up any element of our worship, whether it's the reading and preaching of Scripture, or the singing of psalms and hymns, or prayer, or even the last word of worship, the benediction, that all of these are commanded and we have a warrant for them. And so three weeks ago, we looked at the very first benediction in Scripture, Numbers chapter 6. And today we're going to be looking at one of the predominant New Testament benedictions. If you have a Bible, I hope you'll look at 2 Corinthians 13. And I want to remind you that we do these elements in worship because we're commanded. We don't have, we don't have uh, the right or the freedom to make up elements. So biblical worship, if you're going to describe to somebody, if you're talking to somebody about uh, what biblical worship is like, it is simple, meaning it's a very few basic elements. It's transferable. You can do it in Africa or you can do it on Woodruff Road. My, my mentor, Terry Johnson, probably the best thinker on worship alive today, Terry Johnson says, if you need electricity and a smoke machine to do your worship, you're not doing it right. So you could do biblical worship under a tree in Africa. I've, I've actually led a worship service in a field in the Dominican Republic, and it was glorious because you can sing, you can preach, you can pray with, without verbal. It's reverent because when you worship the way we do, it's necessary. And I'm going to engage in, and some of you are going to lose hope about halfway through this, I'm going to engage in the longest possible introduction to a subject you can do and then say very little itself about the benediction comparatively. So I want you to notice as you look at 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14, this is a very familiar benediction. It's Paul's last word to the Corinthian church, who, by the way, for those of you who think, boy, those Corinthians, they were low lives. Paul has to write two letters. There are actually more, but we have two in the canon of Scripture. And these guys were nothing but trouble. It's interesting that 80 years after the reception of 2 Corinthians, one of the early church historians, Hegesippus, goes there and said, oh, the sweet savor of Paul's gospel was still there in the church. Apparently, the last word of 2 Corinthians really kind of righted the ship for the church in Corinth. And, and they were solid for generations thereafter. But what I want you to notice, first of all, just something very simple. Look at 2 Corinthians 13, 14. And you don't have to be a scholar to, to pick up on this. You will notice... <clears throat> that the three persons of the Trinity are mentioned. This is a Trinitarian benediction. Now, for those of you who don't know, we are a Trinitarian church, and I'm going to give several evidences of that in just a second. But from 30 AD, at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, until 325 AD, so for a period of 300 years, until the Council of Nicaea, the Christian church sharpened and defined and fought over this issue, who is God? What is He like? And finally, the fences were put up, 
and error was banished, and the doctrine of the Trinity was confessed. So the doctrine of the Trinity, if somebody were to stop you on the street and stick a microphone in your face and say, what is God like? Hopefully you would say something like this. There is one God who eternally exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. Because if you leave out any aspect of that definition, you've fallen off into heresy. Our definition of who is God is there is one God who eternally exists in three distinct equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so any orthodox definition of God has to include these three truths. First, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. Second, Each person is fully God. Third, there is only one God. So let's think about that because all of this is going to be necessary for you to understand this benediction that Paul gives, his last word to the church at Corinth. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, notice as you look at your text in verse 14, are distinct persons. The Bible speaks of the Father as God, of Jesus as God, the Holy Spirit as God. Are these just three different ways of looking at God or simple ways to referring to three different roles that God plays? The answer is no, because the Bible also indicates that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct persons. For example, since the Father sent the Son, you have one person acting on the other person. Since the Father sent the Son into the world, He can't be the same person as the Son. And likewise, after the Son, the Trinity the Holy Spirit, into the world. So the Holy Spirit must be distinct from the Father and the Son. Now, I hope you'll stay with me here because there's going to be a huge payoff after this introduction in this benediction. So the fact that the Father and the Son and the Spirit are three distinct persons means that the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father or the Holy Spirit. They're different persons Not like some heretics will say, they're just three different angles of of looking at God. Another serious error that people have, have about this is to say, well, the father went through roles. He was first the father, and then he was the son, and then he was the Holy Spirit. Contrary to this, the Bible teaches that God will always be three distinct persons. There was never a time when one of the persons of the Godhead did not exist. They are all eternal. So while the three persons of the Trinity are distinct, this doesn't mean that one is inferior to the other. They're identical in attributes. They're equal in power and love and mercy and glory and holiness and knowledge and all other qualities. And each person is fully God. If God is three persons, does this mean that each person then, I'm trying to spot the errors for you. If God is three persons, does this mean that each person is one-third of God? Does this mean that the Trinity is divided? The doctrine of the Trinity doesn't divide God into three parts. The Bible is clear that each of the three persons are each 100% God. The Father is fully God. The Son is fully God. The Spirit is fully God. For example, in Colossians chapter 2, Paul says of Jesus, In Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So don't think of... God as a pie cut into three pieces, each piece representing a person. That would make each person less than fully God and therefore not God at all. So the Son is not one-third of the being of God. He's all of the being of God. And, again, we're, we're sharpening up all of our edges on 
what we mean by the Trinity. And still, there is only one God. If each person of the Trinity is distinct and yet fully God, should we conclude there is more than one God? No, we cannot. For repeatedly, the Scripture teaches there is one God. For example, in Isaiah 45, we are told, There is no other God besides me. I am God and there is no other. Now, if there's one passage that brings this all together, in addition to our benediction, it's the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus tells his disciples almost his last words are Trinitarian words. It's fascinating for us to think about what were the priorities of Jesus. Just before he ascends out of their sight, he tells them to be Trinitarian and to be evangelistic. Isn't that fascinating? Things that many evangelical churches completely ignore both of. Jesus tells his disciples to be Trinitarian and to be evangelistic. So giving them the Great Commission, he tells them, make disciples of all the nations. There's the evangelistic mandate. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so notice that Jesus distinguishes the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit as distinct persons. When we baptize, we baptize in the name, name singular, of the three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And notice that all three persons are spoken of equally, that they are each equal in the Trinity. And notice that um, although the three persons are distinct, we're baptized into their names, singular, not names, plural. The names are distinct, yet they constitute only one name. This can only be true if they share one essence. So the reason why I'm saying this, still by way of introduction, so I want you to think about the practical value of the Trinity. I can't tell you in 35 years of ministry how many times people said, oh, the doctrine of the Trinity has no practical value to me. I said, are you kidding me? Because first of all, the church spent more time on two issues over the first 450 years of the church on these two issues. Who is God, the doctrine of the Trinity, and who is Jesus Christ? What are his two natures? And so the early church would have said for hundreds of years as they battled it out, as there were riots in the street over this, who is God? They would have said, oh, and there were people who died for this issue of who is God? Is he Trinitarian God or not? And so the reason why this has practical value, a right understanding of the Trinity is important because God is important. To understand more fully what God is like is a way of honoring Him. And we should allow the fact that God is triune to deepen our worship. We exist to worship a three-person God. And God is seeking people to worship Him in spirit and truth. Find me in hymn 230, where we're going to sing the greatest Trinitarian hymn that the church has. The tune is called Nicaea. For the Nicene Council, it's the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. And so the issue why this has practical value, we must always be striving to deepen our worship of God in truth. And then the doctrine of the Trinity has a very significant application to prayer. The general pattern of prayer in the New Testament is to pray to the Father, through the mediation of the Son, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Did you hear that? Each of the three persons have a role in in prayer. Our fellowship with God should be enhanced by consciously knowing we're relating to a three-person God. And then there's another application of the doctrine of the Trinity. The perfect harmony of the Trinity is most clearly seen 
in the work of salvation. When you study our salvation, it begins with God the Father choosing us before the foundation of the world. And then in the fullness of time, the Son is sent to die on the cross, bearing our punishment for sin. And then later on, the Holy Spirit brings us to salvation by drawing us, calling us, and regenerating us. Without each part of salvation that the different persons of the Godhead play, we would never be saved. You need the work of the Father choosing you. You need the work of Christ atoning for you. You need the work of the Holy Spirit regenerating you. But there's a fascinating attribute, and now I'm edging up close to our text in 2 Corinthians 13. Because Paul's writing to a church in Corinth that's horribly divided. You remember of all of their problems, one of the first things Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians 1 is the fact that the church is so divided, there are people standing over here on Sunday morning saying, I'm of Paul. And there are other people saying, well, I'm of Cephas. And there are other people back there saying, I'm of Apollos. And there are other people saying, losers, I am of Jesus. And they're horribly divided. And so the way that Paul addresses this is over and over again, he speaks of the unity of the Godhead. Speaks of the unity of the divine persons, the unity shared by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They are one in essence and can never be divided. There is never a conflict. There's never divided opinions. There's never disunity within the Trinity. This perfect unity, which characterizes the Trinity, becomes a powerful example for us and especially for the church in Corinth. Do you remember how Jesus? refers to this unity when he prays the night before the cross in John 17, when he says, Father, keep those whom you've given me that they may be one as we are one. And so when you think of the unity of the triune God, that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit never, ever have had or will have a disagreement. That's a model. Jesus, when he prays, says he's praying that the church will be one as the persons of the Trinity are one. And so the the Corinthian church desperately needs to hear this. They're they're divided. And so whenever you think about when you see little squabbles breaking out, people standing over in this corner and that corner, whispering and talking about one another, you say, oh, I hate the disunity of the church. I hate that when that happens in division. What what is it that we need to do? What is it we need to address? Carl, you need to do a sermon and browbeat people and tell them to quit being divided. That's not what Paul does. Paul points to the unity of the Trinity and says... This is your model. This is, this is how you should live. So we're glad to confess this most foundational doctrine of the Trinity. And as I've said several times, but maybe you haven't heard or maybe you haven't noticed, every single worship service at Woodruff Road, we have and we will continue to do so, every single worship service, we confess that we're Trinitarian. We just did it a few minutes ago. So right after we had our corporate confession of sin, we sang the doxology, which is a Trinitarian song. Trinitarian song. We want every worshiper, every worship service to be reminded that we're a Trinitarian church. We never get tired of confessing that. We sing it even when we gather for prayer on Wednesday night. We always close by singing the doxology. So oftentimes we also close our worship because we just can't get enough of Trinitarian doctrine. Oftentimes we close our worship with a Trinitarian benediction, a dismissal with the blessings of all three persons. I 
I, when we were in Las Vegas, we had a, a visiting woman, and I would stand like I do every Sunday and pronounce the benediction. And I noticed when I did that this woman would look at me and she would get, her face would get, after a few, and she would just pick up her purse and her Bible. And so after a few weeks, I said, is there a problem? She said, I'm a Unitarian. I don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. And I hate the fact that you're shoving it down my throat every Sunday. So lovingly, here's what we're doing. We're shoving the doctrine of the Trinity down your throat every Sunday. Every worship service. Well, what I want you to do now is look at that benediction. Look at 2 Corinthians 13, this Trinitarian benediction. And it's staggering to me. Every time I read it, I'm, I'm just sort of amazed all over again that the person who is writing this benediction is a Jew who grew up every single day, every single meal, every single Sabbath would have pronounced by memory the Shema of Israel. Deuteronomy 6.4, Behold, the Lord your God is one. That He would pin these words. You know that's what distinguished Israel from all the surrounding nations in the ancient Near East. All the surrounding nations were polytheistic. They worshipped multiple gods. Israel alone was monotheistic. So how does this happen? How does Paul, who's a rigid confessional monotheistic, he would say, I believe in one God eternally existing in one person. How would he come to a statement in which there is more than one who is the one God? It's breathtaking. And the first explanation for it is the testimony of Jesus. That when Paul encountered the second person of the Godhead, Jesus on the Damascus road, this taught him something that burned into his heart and soul and mind. Yes, the Father is God, but Jesus is God too, without there being two gods. And the Father is God and Jesus is God and the Holy Spirit is God without there being three gods, but only one God. So that Paul can write these words of benediction and he can shine the spotlight on all three persons of the Godhead. Now dig in with me deep here for just a few minutes. I want you to last word to his problem child, the church in Corinth. <clears throat> he begins with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember what Paul is doing is this is a blessing. He's pronouncing a blessing. And every time a minister stands up at the close of a service and uses this or number six, He's pronouncing a blessing. This is not a curse. It can only be received by believers, but this is not a curse. It's all blessing. So notice the first element of the blessing, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice, first of all, this title that Paul uses. It speaks of total sufficiency. Lord declares his deity. Jesus speaks of his humanity. And Christ declares his sovereignty. And what you're getting is this glorious picture of the second person of the Godhead. And notice what he says the nature of the blessing is from Christ. Grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot separate grace from Jesus. When Paul thinks of Jesus, do you know what he thinks of? He thinks of grace. It's not that you can be in fellowship with Jesus and union with Christ and not experience grace. Grace isn't something additional to Jesus, and we need to be reminded of that because we tend to, de- to use language that sometimes conveys that impression. We talk about the ordinary means of grace, prayer, word, sacraments, and fellowship. They're all means of grace, but they're not means of grace in separation from our relationship to Jesus. All of this comes, all of this grace comes because of our union with Christ. 
Well, the most dominant thought force when we think of the word grace, we must think of God's undeserved mercy to us in Christ. That's what grace always is. It's undeserved mercy. Remember what John Newton wrote in that greatest of all hymns about grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved someone very noble like me. That's not what the hymn says. This, do you not hear the marvel dripping off of Newton's tongue? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch, a wretch like me. Once was lost, now I'm found blind, but now I see. And what Newton emphasizes all through that hymn, Amazing Grace, is he's just struck with the wonder that he, the most undeserving, who himself had been a slaveholder, a captain of a slave ship, and himself a slave, the most foul-mouthed person on the ship, so much so that the captain of the ship had to fine him for cursing. That's bad when on a ship they say, could you tone it down just a little bit? And that the Lord would save someone like that. And so Newton writes this glorious hymn, completely undeserved mercy. So everyone who's a Christian, everyone who trusts in Jesus only, every single one of you who names the name of Jesus, who's united to Christ, are recipients of grace. Grace is what defines you. Grace is what's made you what you are. You live each moment of every day in union with the one who's gracious to you. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Paul has just written in this epistle, 2 Corinthians. He defines grace this way. Listen to what Paul says earlier a few chapters in 2 Corinthians 8. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know it. That He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor that you through his poverty might become rich. Paul staggered, even more so than John Newton saying, isn't this amazing? All of these blessings that come to you, because Jesus chose, not because you deserved it, he chose to make himself poor, to shed all of his glory to come to earth, so that you might be rich. And what Paul means when he says in 2 Corinthians 8, when he says, he did this so that you through his poverty might become rich, you are fabulously rich wealthy. You sit here in fellowship, in union with Christ, a recipient of grace, which means you're rich. No virtue or effort or accomplishment has made you this way. It's all of grace. Your salvation can't be bought or earned or won. This is why Paul says, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works. This is the way of salvation. God in grace chose you, God in grace called you, God in grace justified you. And by the way, grace doesn't just end at conversion. All through your Christian life, God, through undeserved mercy, continues to sanctify you and preserve you. Salvation from beginning to end is all of grace. It's all of God, all of His glory. Throughout our Christian journey from earth to glory, we are beneficiaries of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you'll hear people say this. You'll hear it from radio hosts and country music singers, and people say, how are you doing? And they'll kind of do the glib answer, better than I deserve. I always want to say, could you be a little better theologian there? Because when somebody says, how are you doing? You should say, I am blessed by the grace of a sovereign triune God. That's, that describes every aspect of my life. It's interesting that, that Paul even thinks of the grace of God 
is what helps him to go through trials. You remember when he suffered that thorn in the flesh, and he writes about it the chapter before this, and he asked the Lord three times to take it away, and he relays the Lord's response. My grace, my undeserved mercy is sufficient for you. So even when we go through trials, the Lord propping us up, that is of of grace. Now, I want you to think about this issue of grace, because we're talking, look at that benediction, the first clause, the first third, is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what we're talking about is is when the minister raises his hands and he starts pronouncing the blessings that flow from the three-person God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're talking about all of these these acts of goodness that pour out to you, salvation and sanctification and, and preservation. Do you know who didn't hear the grace of God? The Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of hearing the ironic benediction when he was on the cross, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Do you know who didn't receive the Lord's favor? The Lord Jesus in that moment. Here's what he heard. And let me say this very reverently. He heard this. Instead of the Lord bless you and keep you, he heard the Lord curse you. The Lord make his face to turn away from you, to shun you, to be angry with you, and to give you hell. The only reason why you and I can know the grace of God is because Jesus endured the wrath of God for us. How does Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5? God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be reckoned the righteousness of God in him. So the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that first clause of the benediction, is his willingness to die for us, his willingness to bear the curse for us, his willingness to be crucified for us, his willingness to suffer the fierceness of the wrath of God for us. What you and I deserve an eternity of the blazing judgment of God is not what we got. Instead, what we get is blessing, grace every day. Every day we live in a condition of grace, every moment, every day. And so when the the minister raises his hands and begins these familiar words, and you hear the first clause, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you should be reminded, oh yes, Every single thing I have, temporal and eternal, is all an undeserved blessing of the mercy of God. Every single thing. Look at the second clause in verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. We understand this here in the Trinitarian discussions to be the love of God the Father, the first person of the Godhead. And it says something, first of all, about the nature of our relationship and the nature of redemption itself. Redemption... Listen carefully, because some of you carry around this faulty idea of Jesus trying to win from a reluctant father a love that otherwise wouldn't be there. It's the love of the Father that sent the Son. You remember in John 3.16 what we're told? Let's ask this question. Let's interrogate the Scripture and ask. So, was the Father reluctant to save a people and Jesus had to wrangle salvation out of Him? No, listen to these words. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. In other words, the first person of the Trinity so loved the world that He sent the second person of the Trinity, 
that whoever believes in Him should not perish. The Father loved the world. There's a pastoral, pastoral question that arises here. It's intriguing, I think. Why would Paul think the Corinthians need to be reminded of the love of God the Father? Look at your, the text and look at that second clause. When Paul says, I'm pronouncing these blessings upon you. First of all, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the love of God, and he's speaking of the Father. Why would he think they need to be reminded of the love of God the Father? Perhaps because many of us need to be reminded of relationships, that we were born to earthly fathers that maybe weren't the best kind. and We have that psychological imprint that we put into our relationship with our heavenly father. And Paul wants to remind everybody, no matter how good or how bad or how absent or how present your relationship with your dad was, is that the heavenly father loves you. And so that's pronounced. This is the last word to the church. And I want to tell you why. I think there's an Adamic gene in our nature. By that I mean that we inherit from our fallen father, Adam. That we have an Adamic gene that distrusts the concept of the love of the Father for us. And you see it all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve had everything, right? What else could they want except that one way into the hearts of Adam and Eve by insinuating the thought that the Father didn't really love them. That if He really loved them, He wouldn't forbid them anything. And they're like, yeah. If the Father really loved us, He would give us everything. You see it in the parable that Jesus tells of the prodigal son and the older brother. And the older brother has all been out of shape. And you remember that when the father's killing the fatted calf and giving the prodigal son the the ring and the cloak and so on, and the older brother says, you never did that for me. All these years, I've been here at home and I've been slaving for you. He saw his relationship to the father as one of slavery trying to win and curry the favor of a father who was otherwise reluctant. And what does the father say to him? All these things are yours. Everything I've got is yours. You've always been my son. Perhaps this morning, you're not sure and you harbor a deep suspicion that the first person of the Godhead doesn't really love you. You've come to understand something about your sinfulness, the wretchedness of your heart. The good that you would do, you haven't done. And that the evil you would have shunned, you found yourself doing, and you've discovered something about your heart, and you begin to think, God cannot love me now. Listen, my friend, He knew all about that in eternity. He knew all about that when He sent His Son. There isn't a sin that you commit that God doesn't already know and isn't already atoned for in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing. There's nothing that you can do that can make the Father love you less than He already loves you. Listen to the Word of God in the Scriptures. Look at this last verse of 2 Corinthians 13. The Father loves you. Do you question the Father's love because of how you feel? Then preach this word to your feelings. Do you discount the Father's love because of how things look? Don't judge the Father's love because of what other people do. The love of God was perfectly demonstrated by the Father sending the Son for you. 
The Father, by the way, doesn't love you because you're lovable. You're lovable because God loves you. The love of the Father is unconditional. It's long enough to last forever. It's high enough to take us to heaven. It's low enough to pull us up out of the depths of sin. And the love of the Father, my favorite aspect of His love, is it's permanent. Human love fails over and over again. There are people in this room right now who a spouse has walked out of your house because they've said, I don't love you anymore. Five years after standing in front of a congregation of people and saying, my love will be permanent. You know this. That human love fails because it changes. You can do something or not do something and that will cause others' love towards you to change. But the Father's love. Look at those words in verse 14. The love of God. This is the blessing that I'm to remind you of every week in the benediction. The Father's love is not like that of your dad who walked out. It's not like that of your wife who walked out. It's permanent. That's why the writer of Lamentations says in Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The love of the Father is loyal. There's nothing you can do to make the Father love you less. You don't have to be haunted by your past mistakes or troubled by your present circumstances or worried about future possibilities because the love of the Father abides upon you and you cannot escape Him if you've known His grace. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. I'm sure that neither death nor life Nor angels or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in creation can separate us from the love of God. And look at the third element of the benediction in verse 14. The fellowship or the communion of the Holy Spirit. Paul uses several different thoughts and words and ideas to describe the relationship we have with the Holy Spirit. By the way, I've got, I've got to say this. I'm going to say it again in just a second. I'm astounded at how many folks have walked in the door of this church and will start talking about the Holy Spirit. And I'll talk about the person of the Holy Spirit. And so many people have confessed to me, you know, Carl, I didn't realize the Holy Spirit was a person until now. And so they'll use language like the Holy Spirit, it, and they, they won't use the language of personhood. And so you know you're a heretic if you use that language. So when Paul speaks of the Holy Spirit, he uses some of these images. His presence is, he's the seal, the guarantee that everything God has ever said is true. He's the, the Greek word is the erbon, the down payment. The presence and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit indwelling you is the down payment. He's the witness. We're told in Romans 8.16 that the, the Spirit witnesses with our spirit that we're the children of God. And if if children heirs and join heirs with Jesus Christ. And so when you think about all the new things the New Testament says about the Spirit when He comes, all the blessings He brings, He testifies to us, He witnesses to us, He ministers to us, He nourishes us, He feeds us, cares for us, grows us, rebukes us, hymns us in, guides us, directs us, is the guarantee. The Holy Spirit is God saying to you, I've begun a good work in you. I'm going to finish it. The evidence is I've given you the third person of the Godhead to take up residence in your life. Having begun 
in a relationship of grace with Jesus, I'm going to bring you all the way home to glory. And the Spirit is the proof of that. Now, one of the things you should be reminded is the Holy Spirit. J.I. Packer used the term that the Holy Spirit is the shy person of the Trinity. And I think that's true, if reverently understood. Meaning the Holy Spirit never spotlights himself. This is how you know that the charismatic movement, I can completely do, just wave it off just based on this. The charismatic movement shines the spotlight on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is always saying, I don't want the spotlight. Because the Holy Spirit is always shining the spotlight on Christ. Always. That's His function. And so, He always shows up to exalt the name of the Son and to accomplish the will of the Father. But the Spirit is just as much God as the Father and the Son. And God the Holy Spirit is deeply involved in your spiritual blessing and benefits. And so notice what we're told at the end of verse 14, that third clause. The communion or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit with you. And so what dwelling you, you have fellowship with Him. You have communion with Him. Now notice again, He's not an impersonal force or an it, He's a person. The evidence, look at the last clause in verse 14, the evidence of the personhood and deity of the Holy Spirit is that you can commune and partner in fellowship with Him. How close and intimate is this fellowship? He comes and indwells you. That's astounding. This is what Jesus taught. You remember in the Upper Room Discourse when Jesus said in John 14, The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and He will be in you. It's an astounding blessing that you have the third person of the Godhead. Paul uses that same truth as a warning against sin. When he's writing to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 3, and he says, Don't you know that you're the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? And Paul is using that saying, Don't go to those places. Don't look at those sites on the, on the internet because you're carrying around the third person of the Godhead with you. He dwells in you. Well, here's this church, the church in Corinth. It has so many problems. They have relational divisions and immoral behavior and improper worship and bad doctrine. But I want you to notice how Paul concludes the benediction. Look carefully at the last words. After saying the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit, he says, be with you all. And what's fascinating is this is the church, remember, that's just ripped into shreds in terms of having different, having different groups. Remember, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Apollos. And what does Paul do? You know, the, here's, here's the Cephasites, and here's the Apollosites, and here's the, uh, the Paulites, and here's the Jesusites. And they're hoping that Paul will say, here's his way that he addresses factions. He says, these three blessings be with you all. And he immediately makes everybody equal. What's fascinating is Paul has been very poorly treated by this congregation. If you're familiar with 1 and 2 Corinthians, he's endured slanders and questions about the authenticity of his ministry and apostleship. Look what his last word is to Corinth. It's a word of blessing. He's teaching the Corinthians to bless those who mistreat you. 
a lesson learned from Jesus. But I have to say this. This benediction only applies to believers. Unbelievers who may be present at the worship service when the benediction is pronounced will receive no blessing from it. They have no part in it. Because they don't have Jesus as their Lord and Savior, only Christ can unlock the door to all these blessings of God. And this may well be the reason for this unusual order. Look at the order. It's it's kind of odd that Jesus is mentioned first, even though he's the second person of the Godhead before the other two persons. The usual order of the persons of the Trinity is that given in the Great Commission in Matthew 28 when Jesus says, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. But look at this benediction. Notice it reads, you begin with the grace of... And so what Jesus is teaching us, he's the, he's the key into the door. No man comes to the Father but by me. If you're not a believer here yet, the only way you can receive any of these blessings that I say in this benediction is to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for grace. You must acknowledge that you're a needy sinner and that Christ alone can save you from sin and eternal death. And you must commit yourself trusting in Him alone as a substitute to repent and believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior so you can begin to know these blessings. Look at them one more time. Three full blessings. Grace, all mercy, undeserved favor, love of the Father, communion with the Holy Spirit. Believer, when you hear this benediction, it's the reminder that the three-person God is for you. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son and by the strength of the Holy Spirit to thank you for these covenant words, words that speak blessing, that whereas our Savior received the curses, we receive blessing upon blessing. We are a blessed people because we are loved by you, our Father. And so receive our thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.